0: We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you indeed are the man of sorrows who came and lived. You never sinned. You died for our sin. And we thank you that because of that, we can cry out, hallelujah. We thank you that three days after you died, we celebrate that the Father, his power, raised you to life again, and you are alive now and forevermore. You have conquered sin, Satan, and death. You alleviate the curse. God, today we're mindful of people to pray for. We think of Eleni, and we ask that you'd be with her as she's been diagnosed with shingles. We pray, God, as she's in an immense amount of pain, that you would walk with her. We thank you for the medication she will have. We ask, God, that you would use that to help the pain to subside. But you are the great physician, so our trust isn't simply in diagnosis and medicine, but in you. And so, God, as the great physician, would you heal her? And would you cause our attention now to fall to your word? It is living and active. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have loved diving into the book of Genesis, and I hope it has been helpful for you. We are in the third chapter this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. Adam and Eve, as we've discovered already, have been created in the image of God in a variety of ways, spiritually, rationally, morally, intellectually, and representatively. In that, Adam represents All of humanity, Adam and Eve do that. So spiritually, rationally, morally, intellectually, and representatively. They're in a perfect environment, and they have every provision necessary to worship and serve God and obey him. And we find that that's what they're called to do. They're called to uh, worship God in service. They're called to care for that which God has created. And they're called to obey God. He offers them a command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right there in the very first couple of chapters of Genesis, chapter 2, we have a command that God has given of a tree that they cannot eat. But they are in the perfect environment with every provision necessary to worship, serve, and obey God. And they're free to eat from any tree in the garden except for that one. And so as we come today to chapter 3, the fall cannot be blamed on environment. They're in the perfect environment, and it cannot be blamed on their, uh, on their nature, uh, their heredity. That is something that cannot be blamed on because they right now are the perfect human beings. So I have your Bibles with you, Genesis 3. I'll stutter, step through it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The author here describes the serpent as crafty. Now, crafty or shrewd at times is used in a positive light in Scripture. In the book of Proverbs, this very word is used in a positive light at times. But it also can be used negatively. You can be crafty or shrewd positively or negatively. Here, it carries the idea or the connotation of laying traps or preparing dangers, of laying traps or preparing dangers. And so a serpent shows up to Eve. Now that should throw us right there. The Bible doesn't give any context to this. Had the serpent come up to her ten times prior to this and had a conversation, we have no clue. Right? Did the serpent talk to them on a regular basis? The Bible doesn't say. But the serpent comes up to her. Why this should throw us is because, one, temptation came disguised and to it came disguised as a subordinate creature. This serpent is a subordinate creature of which humans were granted the dominion over. They were to exercise dominion over the creatures. And so here this serpent is going to exercise its authority over Eve, over it against Eve exercising her authority over it. So who is this? Well, we don't find this out until the New Testament. In Revelation 12, we hear this, verse 9, The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, his angels with him. So we have here the dragon, Satan, the devil, who he leads the whole world astray being called the ancient serpent. And what does he do? He questions God's word. Note what he says. Did God really say? Now, the theme of God's word is prevalent in these first three chapters. In the first chapter, God's word is authoritative. Sorry, it's powerful. In the first chapter, God's word is powerful. God calls things into existence. God says, let there be, and things just show up. In the second chapter, God's word is authoritative. God offers commands. So in chapter 2, you see God offering a commandment. God saying, this is my rules of parameters in which you need to live. So you find God's word as powerful, God's word as authoritative. And yet what he does is he questions God's word. That will always be Satan's primary means of calling us away from God. He will call us to question God's integrity and God's authority. Satan wants us to question God's integrity and God's authority. Did God really say, you must must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice his lie right there. You can't eat from any tree in the garden Now, notice what Eve said. We can eat from the trees in the garden, but we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and we can't touch her, we will die. Now, God never said you can't touch it. So one of the things that happens here is Eve now creates a legalistic guideline to God's law. And we do this all the time, don't we? As Christians, we create legalistic rules. If I don't do this, then I won't do that. If I don't do this, then I won't cross that line. And we end up trusting in the legalism. We end up trusting in our ability to keep God's law. We end up trusting in our ability to do what God wants instead of his spirit leading us and guiding us. We think our legalism is what will keep it. So her and Adam somewhere probably had a conversation and said, hey, you know what? We know we can't eat it, but let's not even touch it. I'm sure they went over and looked at it a few times. Let's not even touch it. Because if we don't touch it, then we can't eat it, right? Right? We don't touch it, we can't eat it. And so she's already created a rule of legalism that's not going to work. Verse four, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation here doubts the integrity of God. You will not die, God's, God's not told you the truth. God is the liar. You see the reversal of roles here? Satan, who is the father of lies, wants us to think that God is the one who lies. You will not die. You certainly won't die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like him, knowing good and evil. You see the temptation here? God knows you'll be like him. So what does he do? He questions God's integrity and goodness. God's parameters for us are always given to us Because God is good. God's parameters for us are always given to us because God is good. And so she questions God's integrity and she questions his goodness. It's not she, sorry, Satan does. Satan questions God's integrity and goodness. And then he says this, you certainly won't die. There's no punishment for your sin. God has said if you eat of it, you surely will die. Satan says you won't die. Satan wants us to think that there is no consequence for our sin. That's what he's done to humanity. You see it all around us, right? There's no consequence for your sin. I engage in conversation with Christians all the time now, not from James North, thankfully, typically, but who think it's better to live together before they get married because there's no consequence to your sin. We think you need to try out the merchandise before you purchase it, quote unquote why they live together before they're married, because there's no consequence for our, our sin. And you see this lie working its way out all through humanity. There's no consequence for our sin. In fact, in, out of the first sermon of the series a few weeks ago, it's why we want to eliminate, humanity wants to eliminate God out of the equation entirely. Because there's no consequence for our sin. Because if there is no God, there is no sin. And so, Satan wants Eve to think there is no consequence for her sin. But thirdly here, so Satan questions God's integrity and goodness. He claims that there's no punishment for sin. And thirdly, he says God's holding back on you. There's a purpose for you, Eve. You're able to know good from evil. You're able to gain knowledge. Your eyes will be open. And God doesn't want you to have it. God doesn't want you to enjoy life the way you're intended to. You ever hear that? I mean, I remember this when I was in high school, and I would talk to friends of mine about why I would choose to or not to to, uh, live a certain way. In fact, I remember when I was 16 in my sociology class, I wrote a paper on why I wouldn't kiss a girl until I was married to her. And the teacher took it and photocopied it and gave it to everyone in not just our sociology class, in both grade 11 sociology classes so that everybody could comment on it for me. That was wonderful, wonderful experience I had back then. And, and I remember defending why I thought that intimacy was only for marriage with people. And I remember standing virtually alone and people thinking that I was the greatest fool that the world had ever seen. Because why is that true? Why would you do that? Why don't you try the merchandise before you decide to buy it? And what happens in our culture and our society is we're convinced that what God has granted as parameters is really him holding us back for something that is good. That's what he convinces Eve of. So did God really say is Satan's strategy? It has been all along. John 8:44 tells us, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the tr- truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. So I want you to note what, uh, what Satan does here. Satan questions the word of God. So he starts with that. Did God really say? Then Eve wrongly paraphrases the word of God. So Satan questions the word of God. Did God really say? Eve wrongly paraphrases it, right? We can't touch it. And then finally, the serpent actually denies the word of God, says you will not die. And that is the trend that you will find happening in our lives and the lives around us all the time when it comes to sin and temptation. Did God really tell you that's outside the box? We often respond with some type of response, of excuse, some legalistic thing as to why we shouldn't do that. or If we, if we don't do that, you know, we'll be, we'll be worse off for it because of this or that. Right? And so we can't do this to do that. And then Satan comes back at us and says, man, you're way off. You're way off. You're way off. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. I want you to note the three words described here. Good for food pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. It's practical, it's good for food. She just realizes it's practical, I need to eat, that's food, I can eat it. It's aesthetically pleasing to the eye. So it's aesthetic, it's beauty. And thirdly, it's spiritual, it's desired or desirable for gaining wisdom. Those are the three things when she sees the fruit that she thinks are true of it now. It is practical, it's good for food, it's aesthetic, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's spiritual. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. And that's what happens when we are come to face with sin. We think it's good for us. We think it's pleasing to us. And we think it's desirable. We think it's desirable. Now I want you to know what happens here. Adam's there, and he eats. Now we can be really hard on Eve, but this is really important to note. Adam just complied. He didn't have to be tempted with clever words. Eve is tempted. Eve eats. And she says, hey, honey. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. That's, that's it. Now, the hey, yeah, sure isn't in the text. I'm just putting that on there. But though Adam is equally tempted, he actually simply takes it and eats. Then both of their, the eyes of both of them were open. Verse 7, they realized... They were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim. So this is Jehovah God, Yahweh Elohim, the supreme name for God, Yahweh. As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God has come down as he would. He's walking among the garden. Would that not have been amazing to have been part of? And they hide. God wants us to confess our sin, but typically what we do is we hide our sin. We hide our sin because of the shame, because of the guilt. We hide our sh- sin because we don't want anyone to know. And so they hide their sin. Because sin, the wages of sin is always death. And it's death in these ways. Listen, this is important. It's death relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically. It's death relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically. Sin tears at relationships, us to one another, and us to God. Sin tears at our emotions. Our emotions are now fallen and can't be trusted as our guide. Sin tears at us psychologically, or mentally, if you will. And it now just wreaks havoc on our intellect and on our mental health. Sin also tears at us spiritually. And we're now unable to connect to God the way he's created us to. And lastly, sin tears at us physically in that we will now die and we were never intended to. The other night we were talking about sin in our house at our devotion. As we were talking about sin... The kids said, well, Dad, your sin is you get angry. It's nice that they do that. And I said, well, guys, I've gotten better at it. And Jill and I were like, well, not, not really. And um, so as we engage in this conversation, Amy has pointed this out to me over the years, that, that if in my anger I go to correct our children and I blow my top being overly upset about something, kicking Ethan out of the house for the rest of his life, something to that effect. If that occurs, then what happens is now we're focusing on my sin over and against their sin. And I have created this incredible rift between now Amy and I are battling, I'm now battling with Ethan, now the twins have come to his defense, Abby has gone to her room, and it's an complete and utter mess in our house. Just a mess. Because of my sin. Because my sin triggered that entire mess. And now there's emotional, psychological spiritual, uh, like all of that is there, relational tension within our home. I'm convinced I'm not the only person who's experienced this ever in their house. Though for you it may not be anger, for you it might be greed. For you it might be some type of sexual sin. For you it might be gossip. For you it may be lust. For you it may be whatever it is. And obviously anger isn't the only sin I struggle with. It could be pride, it could be any one of a number of other things. The word of God gives us life and order. The word of the serpent only brings chaos and death. The word of God brings life and order. The word of the serpent can only bring chaos and death. So God calls us to confess our sin, but our shame causes us to hide and to blame. So first they're hidden. Verse nine, but the Lord calls to them, where are you? Now, God knows where they are. This is like me playing hide and seek with my kids where I can see them when they're younger, but I'm still calling out, where are you? It's not like God's truly like, Adam, you've done a really good job hiding, man. I can't see anywhere. That's not what's going on here. He wants Adam to be able to come out so that his sin can be confronted. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He wants a confession. Adam right now is avoiding confessing his sin. Did you, did you do what I told you not to do, Adam? I only gave you one command. I placed you in the perfect environment with the perfect convi- conditions to follow me and I only gave you one command. Adam, did you blow it? He wants Adam to be able to confess his sin. This is what I've done. This is where I was wrong. This is where I've sinned. But Adam can't do it. Adam said, that woman you put here, me here, he blames God. That woman that you gave me can you, like the audacity. Except we do it all the time, don't we? How many times have I heard people blame God for their sin? Dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my office over the years or out for a coffee where someone would say, well, if I wasn't like this. They blame God for the way they're made. They blame God for some of the characteristics they have or some of the attributes they have. Maybe for their height. Maybe for their intellect. And they start to blame God as if it's God's fault that they sinned. As if it's God's fault that they did this. But I hear people do this all the time. Especially when they're legalistic. They, they, now they're smart enough not to actually say God did it. But they start to talk about the very things that God granted them. That's what Adam does. He blames his wife. And he blames God. The woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. God, I just complied. And God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman does the same thing. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames the serpent. Because we want to hide instead of confess. And we want to blame because we are ashamed of our guilt and our sin. And now you'll see this transition from life to death, from pleasure to pain, from abundance to toil, From harmony with God and each other to alienation and conflict, and you find the curse. So God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. The whole idea is here, you will be in the dust. The passive position a snake is in is in the dust. The offensive position is when it comes up. The passive position is in the dust. This is not to say that if you sometimes, there's theories out there that the snakes had legs and God took them away. That's nowhere in the text. The whole idea is you're now going to be in a passive position. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. Now note, dust is important in this text. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's now going to be hostility and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. There's a moment of hope here where you see this messianic promise. That you will strike at the heel of the offspring of the woman. He will actually crush your head. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing, but I would say this is a larger word than that, very severe. With powerful labor, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The pains in childbearing here, the idea is actually the idea of of, of pains in conception. It's the idea of, of pains in pregnancy, it's not just the, the, the birthing moment. The word carries a larger connotation. It carries a connotation of, of actually pains. It's with, it's with pain that you will conceive and give birth. That's the idea of what, of what this part of the curse is. And for some, that pain is the inability to have children. For some, that pain is the loss of a child in a miscarriage. For some, that pain is the loss of a child at birth, a stillbirth that some of you in this room, both in terms of miscarriage and in terms of, 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 of stillbirth and, and in terms of childlessness, have experienced. And the struggle that ensues, and that's part of the curse, because part of God's blessing in Genesis 1 was one of fertility. It was one of fertility. And so here, this is part of the curse. And your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you, Now, instead of your desire being for God, which is the way he had intended it, he says you will desire man. And in man's sinful state, he will dominate. He will dominate. Whenever I talk to a husband and wife who talk about roles and responsibilities in marriage and around submission, whenever I hear that the husband is ruling over and against loving in his approach... He's enacting the curse, and he's dominating when he's not supposed to be. Ruling, husbands ruling or dominating is a curse. That is not what God is intending when he talks about submission later on in Scripture. But we've done this to women for years, right? Women weren't allowed to vote in Canada until between 1918 and 1940, depending on the province and depending on how the rules were relaxed. In 2020, a study was done saying around salary equity that women making the, doing the same work as a man are making 13.3 less for women aged 25 to 34. Why do women stay in abusive situations? And I understand the psychology of it is incredibly complex, but men dominate and women will desire. And that is part of the curse. And we create all kinds of answers in our culture to how to alleviate that curse, and they're wrong. It's not just about the legal system. The answer, the solution to the curse is the cross and the cross alone. It's Jesus himself. He is the answer to the curse. Only him. He said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will now produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. So our work now is cursed. Our work is cursed. It's not just the work of the land. Your work is cursed, which is why sometimes work is just drudgery. It's just hard. It's just difficult. It's not just by the land, though it is by the land. It's it's, it's in all that we're doing. And this happens until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We are the dust that the serpents are about to crawl in. Throwing that one out there. Verse 20, so Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all that was living. In this moment, when Adam names Eve, His wife, Eve, she hadn't been called that yet. I don't know what he called her up till then. Hey, honey, I have no clue. Uh, Up until this moment, when he calls her Eve, you find something fascinating here. Because Eve means the mother of all living. Adam still believes that God's purposes with him are not done. Is that not good news? Through all of this, somehow Adam still experienced God's grace. Maybe he understood that there was hope in the fact that though the serpent would strike at his heel, that he would crush its head or one of his offspring. I'm not sure where this came from in terms of it, but we know that Adam is experiencing hope. So the Lord God then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Just pause there for a moment. They covered themselves with leaves, and now they're covered with skin. That means that God took animals and killed them. I imagine Adam and Eve watched this. They hadn't experienced death yet. They hadn't seen blood yet. And this is now a taste of what the whole sacrificial system will look like, as animals' blood are shed for our sin. And the Lord God said, "Now man has become like one of us; he now knows good and evil." That's the only thing that changed. We now know evil, and the difference between good and evil. So we can't reach out our hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. Our days are now numbered. So the Lord God banished us from the garden to work from the ground, uh, to work the ground from which we had been he had been taken, and we were driven out to the place on the east side of the garden where the cherubim and flaming sword were flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. So you see God's gracious provision in providing with the skin of animals. I want to do nine things as I close. I got to do these quick. First is this. Adam is our representative. Adam and Eve were in the perfect place with the perfect environment, giving the best conditions to worship, serve, and obey God, and they sinned. And people come to me all the time and say, you know, had I been Adam, I'm like, stop it. That is not true. I know you. You're now filled with the Spirit, and you sin horrendously. I sin horrendously. You are a fool to think that you would have done differently than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are our perfect representatives. Number two, God's Word is powerful and authoritative and can be trusted. God's Word is powerful and authoritative and can be trusted. That's the whole point of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the word of God is powerful, it's authoritative, it can be trusted. Number three, Satan is a liar. He will attack God's integrity and he will attack God's goodness. Satan wants us to believe that God doesn't want our best. Satan wants us to believe that the parameters he's given us are actually for our worse, our worse off for us, we're worse off for them. Number four, the appeal from temptation to sin will always be that it's good, pleasing, and desirable. Don't be surprised that the temptation to sin will always come wrapped in a package that looks good, that seems pleasing, and that is desirable. That's how it will always come. Number five, be wary of the danger of legalism. Do not trust in your rules, trust in God. Do not trust in your rules, trust in God. Number six, Satan wants you to believe there's no punishment for disobedience and it's what he's convinced the world of today. Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone. We've moved to a crazed day where people convince themselves that they can do whatever they want and live however they want and that there's no consequence for doing it. Number seven, and Jamie, you guys can come up. The wages of sin is always death. The wages of sin is always death, relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically. As we're going through our devotions of the family, we were coming through uh, to Solomon, and then we've moved on to Isaiah. But in, the, in Solomon, as we've looked at him, we looked at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I believe Solomon wrote Proverbs in the earlier days of his, his life, or much of Proverbs, because God granted him great wisdom. Then he chose to go away from God's wisdom, to walk away from it, And in the book of Ecclesiastes, what does he finally say after everything is meaningless, the pleasure is meaningless? My kids have a hard time comprehending all those wives and concubines, by the way. All that money and pleasure, all the power that he had, right? And he talks about power and pleasure and everything that he's had, and it's useless, it's meaningless, right? Solomon comes to the end and he says, this is it. Remember the creator in the days of your youth. And then he says what? Fear God and keep his commands at the end of the book. This is the whole duty of humanity. He says, man, if I could wind back the clock of time with all the wisdom God gave me, fear him, keep his commands. As we came to the book of Isaiah and our devotions, I was talking about the messianic promise in Isaiah where everything will be annihilated and then They will come back, and they will continue to desolate the land until only a stump is left, and from that stump will come a root, and that root will be from Jesse. And Jesse, of course, is David's father, and so I believe that what he's saying there is God will keep for himself a remnant, and through that remnant, through his people, eventually will come Messiah. And so I'm explaining this to my kids and explaining that This is over 700 years before Christ was born, right, B.C., and they said, B.C. is before Christ? I'm not going to say which kid said that, but it's not the younger two. B.C. is before Christ? I'm like, Yeah. And they said, and so AD's after death. I'm like, no. No, that leaves a 33 year gap. That is not what AD stands for. AD is after the year of our Lord, right? Anyway, if, if, if you need to Google this later, you can. But Isaiah then promises that one day from the stump will be a branch, and from that branch, which is from the shoot of Jesse, will be remnant, and from that remnant will come Messiah, because here's the truth. Out of this, God provides for us. What happened in the garden? Eve and Adam took and ate. What happens at the cross? While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he, after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. The sin from the commandment that was given to us that broke and spiraled us into sin, spiraled the whole of the world down is radically abolished by Christ on the cross. His body is broken, his blood is shed, and he says, take and eat. He reclaims what we have done. Is that not great news? They took and ate the forbidden fruit and spiraled us into this mess. And Jesus says, the only way out of this is me. The only way out of this is that I come. We just celebrated this last week. The only way out of this is that I show up and my body will be broken and my blood will be shed and you can take and eat and trust me because I am good. Is that not great news? And lastly, number nine. The way of life is only available from God. The way of life is only available from God. And his way is always good. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today and like Adam and Eve, we want to hide. Because we're ashamed of our sin, I am. And God, we're thankful that you call us out that you want our sin exposed so that you can heal us. And so we ask that you would work in our lives. The enemy, Satan, wants to tempt us in a way that we will doubt your integrity and your goodness. Father, may you help us to never doubt your word, their integrity, your goodness. And Jesus, we thank you that though we took and ate with Eve and Adam as our representatives, that you've offered your broken body and blood for us, and you tell us to take and eat. Spirit of God, you are in us. We need you to sanctify us from all the ways that we wrongly think we can follow you, the triune God, more fully. Walk with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.